another edition of Kaleidoscope. This is Mike Zeno recording from a very, very warm Nikos here. And with me I have Ariro Nicolau. Ariro is a Cypriot writer and filmmaker who calls both New York and Cyprus her home. Welcome, Ariro. Hi, Magda. It's really nice to be here with you. I'm glad we eventually found the time to connect because we've been trying for quite a while, but I'm sure it's going to be worth waiting for. Um, tell me, Ariro, what's, tell me a little bit, introduce yourself to the audience because you did better than I did. <laughs> of course. So, um, my name is Ariro Nicolau and, um, I'm a writer and filmmaker. As you mentioned, I'm originally from Nicosia, Cyprus, but, uh, for the past 12 years, I've been living and working in uh, the US. Um, I got my PhD in comparative literature and something called critical media practice from Harvard in 2018. And uh, since then, I've been active um, in the arts in many ways. Um, I worked for uh, a museum for a little bit. I've taught at universities. I've taught literature and film at universities. And um, at the same time, I've been doing my own film projects. And um, my film projects, like my academic research, uh, focus a lot on intergenerational uh, memory, on memory in post-conflict societies and um, in the experience and representation of forced displacement, especially in the Mediterranean region. And of course, as you may guess, my academic and sort of creative interests are greatly influenced by where I'm from because uh, Cyprus being a Mediterranean locale, a sort of quintessentially Mediterranean locale, um, and uh, having the history, the modern history that it does, um, I've never really been able to shake off my background. Um, and I find that uh, I keep returning to the same questions um, that are... Uh, basically influenced also by my own family's experiences, my mother's forced displacement and my relationship to her ancestral mm. home uh, and so on and so forth. But tell me, because I'm, uh, you know, I love storytelling and I think the stories, a lot of the stories that should have been recorded are not recorded. They're interesting stories. Mm. And when I talk about the interesting stories, we all know war and peace and agreements and treaties that's not what life is all about. These stories of right. the personal stories, the hardship, the joy, the creativity, the uh, movement is not recorded. Mm-hmm. A lot of these stories are women stories. Um, what's your experience? Because I also believe that storytelling, especially in conflict, is a healing process. Because yes. once you get your story uh, out there, as long as someone listens to you, as long as you give them space, to be heard, it's some of the wound comes out. So it festers less in your soul. You tell me about, uh, that's my take on it, but I'm sure you have a different one or a deeper one. So, No, I think you're absolutely right, Magda. And um, in the book manuscript that I've recently completed and trying to find a home for, that's based on my PhD dissertation, part of the argument, because the book deals with 
the literature and film and visual art by forcibly displaced persons in the Mediterranean. Part of the argument is that there's something about that experience. Um, there's something about the experience of some people, you know, may call it trauma. Some people choose to use that term, um, or the hardship or the kind of, um, the doubleness of life of being displaced where you're constantly thinking about the past, but you also have to live in the present that gives a specific kind of, um, flavor or quality or motivates um, artists, filmmakers and writers in a very specific kind of way. Mm. And art, of course, becomes and storytelling, because I think that ultimately all art is storytelling at its core, um, is a process whereby people who have experienced situations in their lives they have no control over, forced displacement being Why one such situation, um, is a way to take their experiences and sort of transform them, write their own narratives um, in a way that becomes, that gives them more agency than they have in real life, right? And in that way, um, I think art can be a healing process, definitely, and it can be a learning process for the rest of us as well. I think the other thing it can be is that a lot of the time when you go through a traumatic experience, you always assume you're alone. And the more mm. stories that come out, you find that you're not alone. Your right. story might be slightly different from the next person's story, but there are a lot of similarities, and I think there has to be a comfort in that. Yeah, That you're absolutely. feeling lousy, or it wasn't nice, or it was really challenging, but you weren't alone. So to me, that's yeah. another important part of actually vocalizing or drawing a story. You'll find threads that join you to a lot of other people or things yeah and what you're saying reminds me a lot of one of the first sort of projects where I tried to combine my research with my media creative media work and it's this lecture performance called history lesson mm -hmm. and uh, in this performance piece um there is a researcher, um, and she is taking on the role of a researcher. The, the performer takes on the role of a researcher, and she's proposing um, an alternative history lesson for Cyprus that's based entirely on um, films shot on the island before 1974, so before the coup and the Turkish invasion uh, that divided the island um, in two. And for me, that was a way, first of all, to push back on the official narratives of history that are usually um, connected to um, male-dominated male narratives yes. around the nation, around military victories, jingoism in general. About the, um, the events, the chain of events. Exactly, yeah. And... Uh, and to focus on other sources of history that we usually sort of set aside and uh, have neglected, which are oral narratives, mm -hmm. personal experiences, but also a place's art history or film history. Because growing up on Cyprus, I found that for many, many years, even though, I mean, I was in, I've always been interested in the arts and literature and so on and so forth. I had to turn 28 years old and live abroad for so long in order to stumble upon these movies that were being filmed 
in Cyprus before the 70s. And that's precisely because the official narrative of Cyprus that's dominated by the war and um, is like this black hole that draws everything else into nothingness, as if nothing else matters, right? Um, And so for me, there was a comfort, but also a kind of anger in finding out so late about these films. Um, Are these films films readily available? Um, Some of them are. I mean, one of the films includes Otto Preminger's Exodus with Paul Newman that was filmed in Famagusta, I believe in 1959. That's a 1960 film release. There's a film with Raquel Welch. A lot of people talk about uh, that film. Yeah, uh, that was filmed in the 70s. There's the Peter Sellers film that basically was being filmed the summer before the war and never got finished. There's a, I think my favorite is this kind of B movie from the UK about vampires. <laughs> um, but the, so, you know, many of these movies are not what we'd call, you know, high, high culture or very, you know, intellectually minded uh, movies. But for me, what was important was that here was an archive of images of this island before the wall, the division, before, mm. yeah, exactly, the barbed wire, before the UN um, sandbags, and all of that with which we, my generation at least, you know, has always, has always confronted. Mm. You know, we were born into this. Um, so, yeah. And that also has a lot to do with hearing the narrative from the Greek Cypriot side. Mm. Because yeah. the division for the Turkish Cypriots actually started in '63, yeah. so that's another yeah. that's another dimension of the narrative. But um, do you want to tell me a little bit about more? Because you've also curated um, art exhibitions, you've curated other types of exhibitions. Do you want to tell me about that, or would you rather we started talking about what it's like living abroad? Yeah, I can mention some um, of my curation work, um, of course. Um, I The way I got into it was basically uh, while doing my PhD, I was very lucky to work for a year at the Harvard Art Museums, and I worked closely with a conser- cons- conservation professional there, and we were running these workshops around the materials um, that artists use, so we run a, a workshop on uh, plaster, mm. for example. We run a workshop on the color red and so on and so forth. Uh, and then after I graduated, I had the distinct pleasure of being part of the Museum of Modern Arts uh, Media and Performance Curatorial Department, which is one of MoMA's, I think it's MoMA's youngest department. Mm-hmm. And they they work with time-based and live art. That's quite, um, a, that must have been awesome to get to work at MoMA. It was a fantastic experience, and I'm very grateful to all my former colleagues there, and um, especially a man called Thomas Lax, who was my uh, my supervisor. Uh, and uh, the show I was working on uh, while I was at the MoMA uh, went on only this past year, um, mm. It was called Just Above Midtown uh, Jam, uh, and it was about the first uh, black woman-run commercial art gallery in New York City. Um, the woman's name is Linda Good Bryant, and uh, she was an inspiration. She is an inspiration because in her life, 
Um, she started off as an art major and then opened up this gallery and then she, where she basically embraced art in the beginning, you know, opened up the commercial art field, uh, to, uh, artists of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then she gave a lot of space and resources to artists, um, and created a space of experimentation for a decade or so. Um, and then she did an MBA and she turned to other fields to, to media and film. She made a film with Laura Poitras, mm -hmm. uh, the Oscar, uh, winning filmmaker. They made a film called Flag Wars about um, Columbus, Ohio and the real estate wars in Columbus, Ohio between the African-American and gay communities of the city. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a strange combination. Working... That's a strange clash of people. Yeah, exactly. So two, two sort of groups of people that um, are considered to be to, to different extents and in different mm. ways, of course, sort of marginalized and even disenfranchised in the context of the U.S. and uh, how how the city of Columbus became the staging ground for um, for sort of conflict and then some sort of resolution mm. between the groups. Um, and now Linda works on food security and a uh, she leads a project. Very important exactly. uh, topic. Yeah, she leads a project called Project Eats. Uh, so they have rooftop farms in the city. Uh, so this is a woman basically, it was a very unusual show but for me it was very inspiring because it shows all the different ways all the different things that we can call art mm. right that social practice and engagement um are can be as much um can be creative endeavors and artistic endeavors as much as you know painting or sculpture or dance and mm. so on and so forth um so after MoMA I also had the pleasure I mean I curated two small programs one was um Cypriot artist films um the show was called Ineffable Islands and it was took place at Space 52 an artist run space in Athens uh -huh. Greece um and this was which year this was 2021 okay. so two That's years ago yes I remember I think I remember you talking about yeah. that it was a collection of uh, Cypriot filmmaking work that that's not straightforwardly narrative mm. that's sort of um yeah and uh in 2020 i believe as part of my uh short film i tony which is about a secret fashion photographer oh yes i remember uh, that one as well yeah uh, I curated um, together in collaboration with the the Island Club, a great artist-run space uh, in Limassol. We curated a very special show of Tony Mussolini's work. Many of the works were never sort of shown before. And one of the works was also selected for a bigger show uh, in Athens, Greece, uh, by the Deste Foundation. Um, so... Yeah, I try to, I curate works that I curate, sorry, programs that fall within the things I'm interested in, both as a filmmaker and as a researcher. Okay. And I mean, you did something about fashion, which is what you got from your mother. When you did, was, <laughs> because your yeah. mother, I'm sure clothes were a very big part, designing clothes were a very big part of your life. 
when you were younger? Oh, a huge part, yeah. And the uh, exhibition uh, that you're mentioning was um, organized by uh, the A.G. Lavendis Gallery yeah. here in uh, Nicosia. The curator was Philip Motuari, who's a very talented uh, fashion curator. Uh, and the works were uh, my mother's Kika Ioannidou and her collaborator uh, and friend, Mariano Ptolemo. And it was this... Well, I had the pleasure of writing one of the exhibition texts yes. for the show, which uh, basically dealt with fashion creations and garments for women that weren't designed with the intent of being sort of commercial, mm. where the emphasis was the craftsmanship in the textiles and uh, the provenance of the textiles and, and so on and so forth. And the use of different textiles, uh, textures. Because yeah. in a lot of the work, exactly. there was the marrying of different textiles that you normally might not put together. But I, what yeah. I like about what you do is that you um, people that aren't involved in art usually look think of art as quite one-dimensional, and they don't realize that art can be a dress you sew, mm-hmm. or it can be a dance you do, or it can be a story you tell. It's not necessarily a painting you paint or a photograph you've taken. And it's also, art is also not what you, the artist, you will not tell me what I have to see. I will take from that what it bring, what it inspires from me as the, per, the observer. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And this concept of art where... Art that is accessible and open that's not in any way, although this word has been overused lately, not elitist, Mm. right? In the sense that art is for everyone. I strongly believe that. And in both, um, whenever I have the opportunity to curate something, um, including the programming for Cyprus Film Days, Mm. the big festival uh, that happens here in Cyprus, that that I did recently, from that to how I talk to students in classes on film and literature, for example, there are, of course, facts and techniques and strategies we all, you know, need to learn about. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to communicating one's opinion or feeling comfortable enough uh, that uh, to express that opinion, uh, I believe that everyone, no one should feel embarrassed about their opinion on an art piece and no one should be afraid of thinking something different than what is on the gallery walls, mm. right? Because I think we've over-explained exactly. art and then people also get used to that. Um, I, I will never forget a friend of mine from Cyprus came to visit MoMA while I was there and um, we were walking around the gallery and I don't remember what work it was, but, um, he, he told me, Oh, uh, I don't understand this piece. Please, you tell me, you that have, you know, this mm. knowledge, please tell me. And I told him, just, you know, look at it and tell me, what do you think? Mm. Does it, does it make you feel something? Because if it doesn't, that's an equally valid response. You may say, this leaves me indifferent. You don't need to cognitively, like intellectually yes. process everything. There's no one intellectual like answer to every art piece. That's not the pursuit of art, and it shouldn't right. be. I remember when my son was little, and because I'm a single parent, I love art exhibitions. Mm. So I used to take him. We had this agreement that I would, we would go, and when he got bored, we would leave, provided it wasn't five minutes later. 
And we would walk in and he'd tell me, well, what am I supposed to be seeing? And I'd say to him, what are you seeing? Mm. What do you see? Yeah. How does it make you feel? There's nothing you have to see. And I think that's the most important thing that you've got to, you, it's your reaction to things that's important to you. Yeah. No one can force that on you. Tell me, is there any, I think you've done a lot of awesome stuff. Is there anything you're particularly proud of? Or has that got a very special place in your heart? Hmm. Oh, that's a great question. I am very proud of a few... Well, that's a hard question because I'm one of those people that are maybe proud of themselves for one second and then find all the reasons to... No, no, you're not allowed <laughs> to, not to be... be <laughs> you're not allowed to be not proud. Rest in that moment when you're uh, proud. Yeah, that's true. Um, I am quite proud besides my phd and i'm very proud of that because it took a lot of stamina mm. and a lot of hours and a lot of you know um but besides that i think i'm most proud of how my 24 year old self took a leap into filmmaking and just said one one day i want to make a movie this summer and I wrote a script and I made a movie that summer. And I think it's, uh, and the movie was basically an allegory again about the Cyprus situation and about what we're, how much we're allowed to have a different opinion from the mainstream opinion on the topic. The film is called Emisi in Greek or in half. And it's this artist that lives in a world where, you know, things are, there's some sort of obsession with the half. Uh, but she creates a, mo um, a work of art that we never see on screen, but Ooh. that we understand represents some sort of reunification okay. or wholeness. Um, and she gets censored for it. And ultimately she, you know, gets hurt or killed. We don't know, uh, because of it. Um, and, um, I'm particularly proud of that because I had no fear in doing it. You, you just know? jumped off the I, deep end. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And now, uh, I, of course, I'm proud of all of my film works. Uh, I, I have three short film works. Um, and the most recent one is a very interesting project called Athalassa, which is about the harsh realities of a tuberculosis sanatorium in 1930 Cyprus. So that's another okay. historical memory is this bit. The, is this the one you're working on now? Or have you no, this that? is a one that I've completed that will premiere at the Drama uh, International Short Film Festival in Greece and hopefully will also screen in Cyprus in October. When is the um, Drama Film Festival? In October? It's in September. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we're screening on the 8th of September, I believe, in Drama. Um, and, uh, this project is a period piece and it's based on a short story by a doctor called Takis Evangelidis, who worked under the British, um, at what used to be the only sanatorium on the island. Um, and, uh, he has this short story that recounts his experiences there. And we adapted that short story into a short, uh, film. Okay. Um, but, um, so... I can talk more about that um, in a bit, but the what I wanted to say was that, yes, I had no fear when I did In Half, my first movie, and now that I'm working on my first 
feature length movie, so long movies, mm. the first big movie, the script of it. Um, I find that I'm, I'm often, I often encounter, you know, fear and, um, that's not, you know, I don't know if it's an age thing or if it's, you know, when you do something and you want it to be like really strong or because it's my first time doing this new sort of bigger endeavor. Um, but yeah, that first project is very close to my heart because it reminds me of what, you know, psychologically is possible as well. <laughs> you know, what I think happens when you do something for the first time, it's like when I did a podcast for the first time, when it was offered yeah. to me, I thought, can I do it? Can't I do it? I'm just jumping yeah. in the deep end. I think when you first do something, you just dive in with confidence. When you've actually yeah. been through the process, you realize what could have gone wrong. <laughs> that didn't. Right. <laughs> but right. that didn't, okay? So you've got to keep on reminding yourself that things can go wrong, but they don't necessarily have to go wrong. That's true. That's true. But I think that, you know, the the intergenerational trauma mentalities that things can go wrong at any point in time. Uh, but that's another matter. I think that you're right to, um, that we have to remember that it's, it's, it's easier to fall into the trap of, you know, of fear. Yes. But I think in the arts, especially, and in anything that requires, you know, um, a self-starting attitude, um, like activism as well, mm. socially engaged stuff, where it's your your life is your work. Yes, and, you know, um, you need to be reminded of that. That yes, a hundred things can go wrong, but you're not doing it because of that. You're doing it for all the good things exactly. that come out of it. And in yeah. fact, of the hundred things that could go wrong, most of them don't happen. Okay. Yeah. So I agree. You That's mustn't true. feed. You must allow yourself to be fed to feed on the fear. Um, mm. Your mother's a Famagustian. How important mm. is Varos in your life, Famagusta? Hugely important. And I don't think I. Um, I I don't think I realized that up until we visited the town in October 2020 when it was first reopened. Mm. Um, and, um, I have two projects that are based on those experiences, um, and on how I basically knew a lot about this place bef while never being there. Right. Mm. But then being there, making me realize that I knew nothing about the place. So it's this double bind of what we know from our parents and what they remember. Mm. You know, my mom was very, quite young. She was a teenager when she left. Many things she remembers precisely. Other things she doesn't remember at all. Um, and of course, the memory of the, the town was passed on to us. But I think that in general, this struggle to try to grasp what your uh parents past was like mm -hmm. no matter you know whether they're displaced or not i think everyone in their lives in adulthood it's like a adult rite of passage at some point i think to contemplate your parents past in a way that's uh, where you can try to get into their shoes because we always have some tension with our parents right um and for me varosi that town is hugely significant in that process I, I, and i, I um, find a lot yeah. of um my 
my mother was a Nicosian, so father was a civil servant, and because there were four kids and he was moving around, every summer my grandmother used to send them to Yadusa because she had a sister mm. there for the three months of the holidays. So for me, and that was her happy space. So for me now, when I go to Yalusa, I go with such a longing. And when I'm there, I always connect with her. Because whenever she used to talk about this place, it was such joy Mm. and such good memories and such a longing. So I go back and I go back more to feel her next to me. It's it's, it's what you said. It's a very strange thing that you go, you you think you know so much. You don't really know that much, but the energy connects you. Yeah. I think, you know, you want to, in my case, is like you feel like it's your own in a way. Yes. Mm. And then sometimes, I don't know, for me, then sometimes when I look at it very cynically, I'm like, why do I feel like it's my own? I don't know this place, but you can't help it because... It's that emotional kind of almost inbuilt connection. Mm. It's um, it's almost primal, I think. Exactly. A connection to it's subliminal. It's unbiased. It's subconscious. It's yeah. not a conscious connection. It's just there. Yeah. I step exactly. into Yalusa, and the connection is there, and yeah. suddenly I'm at peace. Or I mean, it's it's very it's it's not creep. It's actually quite comforting for me. Yeah. For me, I think I'm still at the stage where I'm very. I experience discomfort and sadness, like overwhelming discomfort and sadness. Um, when I think of it, maybe it's the particular situation of the town. You know, I think that is especially uh, well, you're haunting. Parent- not that other situations no. aren't at all. I'm not saying that. I but think your that mother was displaced. Injury. Your mother was displaced, forcibly mm-hmm. displaced. So the hurt is harsh. Yeah, mine is yeah. a play. My my mother's was a choice, whereas your mother right, was had, right. had to leave, never to go back yeah. again. Yeah, Re- exactly. as you said, resettle somewhere, but stuck in the past. So it's a completely right. um, different energetical level. Yeah, exactly, and I think, and it depends, you know, because there's always the feeling of injustice and bitterness that somewhere in there. Um, where uh, the golden years of their lives are very much associated with that space that they lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in my mother's case, they also lost their mother a few years after the war yes. to cancer. So for me, that has always been connected. Like I never had a grandmother and I didn't know where they were from, basically, other than through stories and fragments and a few very precious photographs. Right. Did they manage to save, did your mother manage to save photographs? No, they didn't. But there's a a kind of very striking story. My aunt, who's only a year older than my mother, uh, she was born in 1959, I believe. 1959, yeah. She, or maybe 15, I should know this. But anyway, she was only, again, 15. My mom was 14, something like that. And, um, she had the wherewithal to take a family photo album with wow. her as they were leaving Tamagusta. But Magda, in the 90s, her apartment building burnt down and the photos burnt down with it. So she lost all the photographs or had she managed I get to... goosebumps thinking I know, I am thinking, I'm getting goosebumps. Did they manage to yeah. scan them before I made copies or were they all right? I don't, I don't think so. 
They were all lost. We have a few of them, of course, like many uh, internally displaced persons and refugees have photographs from relatives mm. who were in Cyprus and they, you know, uh, my favorite, well, I have two favorite ones, but one is my, my mother and her cousins on the beach and they're like very young and they're very funny looking under this <laughs> beach umbrella. And then there's one of my grandmother who I rarely see in color. Like I grew up with just one photo of her, like in black and white, a studio photograph and kind of stern. Mm. And she was only 39 when she died. I mean, I'm 33, right? And uh, she uh, she's on the balcony of their home with her two kids. And it's this like almost technicolor, like colorful photograph. And it's a happy photo, uh-huh. you know? Um, and that's so important to me uh, because, again, much of the history of Cyprus, and rightly so, has been tinted with tragedy and death and the missing and the pain um but it's sort of nice to have these indications of normalcy before absolutely uh, absolutely yeah absolutely uh that's yeah. why i don't know if you did you see the documentary missing fetine i haven't yet no i've heard it's fantastic i'm in it just by the way i'm the one of the nor- yeah. um These are women's stories that you have a black history mm. or black memories, but within that, there's always light. Yeah. yeah. And it was not spoken about, so that's a bad thing. But the minute it gets spoken about, the pain does come out. But there's also some, there are good things that come out. A lot of them Absolutely. are bad because these women disappeared and were forgotten. But my friend found a new family. Because Fetini was a great aunt. She found a new family. So In her search for... For her aunt. For exactly. And so I think that... Um, so my this latest project that I'm working on now, it's called Excavators in English. And it's, um, it's about this process. It's about this young woman who lives... A Cypriot woman lives in London. Doesn't, you know, just basically... Um, I don't know how to say this as well in English. Uh, meaning that she doesn't care about where she's from. She's living in London. Um, you know, she's from a she's kind of... She's trying to just create new memories. She's not worried about Exactly. The trying to create new memories. But she comes to Cyprus for the summer holidays, of course, because that connection in my mind between Cyprus as a beautiful tourist destination and the war... And the fact that the war happened in the summer, for me, I can't really shake that. Um, um, but anyway, this woman, uh, she comes home and uh, to enjoy the summer. And while she's here enjoying herself, the remains of her missing grandmother are finally identified 50 years, almost 50 years after she went missing during the war. And uh, something about um, the remains doesn't quite fit with the official narrative of the family um, and she because she's going through sort of these inner questions about where she belongs she's about to sort of you know settle down with someone abroad and the she gets connected to the grandmother after all these years of never sort of not thinking about her she gets connected to the grandmother precisely because she realizes and she discovers that her grandmother was an extra in one of the films that were being shot on the island oh. before the 70s. And so she discovers her grandmother uh, in the footage of one of these films. And for the first time, she sees, you know, her grandmother as this young... Vibrant. Woman. 
vibrant woman in color who's walking around in a regular town and uh, she wants to find out what really happened um and through this search she discovers you know more about her grandmother's you know personality and her likes and dislikes but she also discovers a dark side secret okay. of the family yeah a dark side of the family and what was going on and um and she realizes that perhaps she wasn't killed because of the war, but that she was killed, you know, for other reasons. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that the war was going on and that was used as an alibi. Um, and this connects very much to what we were discussing in the beginning of our chat, that frequently these na- the official narratives of war, military... And what happened? ...feats or not... And what happened, they overwhelm the daily stories. They overwhelm especially the narratives of women, of caretakers, of non-combatants. And I think we owe it to a lot of these people, to all these people, and to the women of the time, you know, uh, and to the artistically inclined of the time, right, and not just the soldiers and the politicians, to, to remember them and to tell their stories too. But I think the reason I started this podcast is because it's not only the women of the past, even women today, their voices. Mm. When I first started this podcast, I thought, who's going to come? Who's going to come to my show? And I realized because mm. I started it about ten years ago, and I realized it was so easy to get people, women, to come and speak because no one else was asking. It's remarkable, actually, how. <laughs> infrequent these opportunities are and i mean i wasn't just getting local women i was because we've got a small island so after a while i ran out of people locally but i i mean i got if Ensler. i had an interview with eve Ensler. had an interview with mm-hmm. two nobel peace prize winners because mm-hmm. no one was saying no yeah and i thought to myself you know that's quite tragic not that i think i'm not a worthy interviewer but it's tragic that they don't get the opportunity to speak as often as they do yeah as they can yeah and i think that um you know my first my two more documentary style films are either all my films that i've written myself with the exception of one are about women and it's a woman's perspective and so on and so forth but then i have the two movies the one about the fashion photographer and the other about the doctor um, that are either about men or, or based on texts written about men. And sometimes I think about that. I'm like, why am I choosing these um, these stories? And on the one hand, you know, I say, okay, next time I'll choose a woman's story. On the other hand, I say, you know what? Women's stories have been told by my men for a really long time. Maybe I can tell this man's story in a way that resonates with a, a more uh, female sensibility in a way that may also balance out some of the, in one case for I, Tony, for example, I, I came into not conflict with the subject of the documentary, but we had, we had a lot of tension there because he wanted to be presented in one way, right? In a very, you know... In Power. a way that a pompous, yeah, yeah, showed him like very powerful, like he could do no wrong, and but in the end, 
And to his credit, he accepted a presentation that was much more complicated because he kept trying to control us on set and we weren't having any of it. <laughs> uh, and I say we because I had a co-director called Margot Fitusi, uh, anthropologist and filmmaker on that project. So I think that we need both of these works. I, I, we need both of these types of works. No, I totally agree with you because I am... Um, you also have feminist men, okay? It doesn't mean of because course. he's a man, he expresses himself in the same way. Because I was looking through some kind of list and I was going through the CV, CVs, the short bios, because that's often how I find people for my show. And mm. I looked at this and I just spotted the, his bio and said, I want this man on my show. Yeah. So I think yeah. we, uh, you need women's voice, but you also need a feminist perspective or a different perspective. Because I think often the men that do get to speak or the men that have the patriarchal um, public discourse mm. to a T. Um, yeah, that specific attitude exactly. as well to the world. Yeah. Okay. I agree. Let's get to the last piece of the sh- what we want to talk about. Um, and I'd like you to try and be concise, even though I enjoyed mm-hmm. this conversation. Tell me what it's like living abroad as a Cypriot woman. Is it different? Mm. Or is it not? Do you change or do you stay the same? I think you change. Um, and it, depending on who you ask, it may be a good change or a <laughs> bad change, you know. Um, I'll keep it concise and so I'll pick one aspect of it. And I'll make it New York specific. The fact that I come from such a small place, and in my analysis all these years, the smallness of Cyprus actually factors into many of the questions and issues, socially, politically, like that, that we deal with. Um, going from that small place to a huge metropolis in a huge country, from a weak, geopolitically kind of weak spot to a geopolitically super powerful neo-imperial if you want to use that term if some agree some not um is quite jarring but it has empowered me greatly so it's allowed me to sort of recognize that no matter the smallness of where i come from i can still you know be proud of what I carry in the world, in this huge world from this small place. And it's also helped me to keep a perspective that goes beyond the sometimes quite insular and closed social conventions that I think bog down a lot of people. They definitely bog down women Mm. on the island. Not all of them, but it's still here. It's still very much here. Um, So I don't think I would have it any other way. It hasn't been easy, not always easy, but um, I'm very privileged and lucky to be able to spend many months of the year in Cyprus and work between both spaces. And that, I think, um, yeah, has given me a very unique life for now. And I'm very um, grateful for it. I think it's perfect when you can work between places because mm-hmm. I, I know your husband can work from his computer and your work is right. project based, which means exactly. you go exactly, you can go exactly to where you need to be and it's not long term. I think it's a blessing. I, I think it's a blessing. I'm, I think it's yeah. the good, it's nice to live on Cyprus provided you can travel. I couldn't, Absolutely. Uh, because I haven't been traveling for two or three months 
and I'm beginning to get a bit of cabin fever. <laughs> yeah, you definitely feel it, like you know, I like you keep hitting on yes. against the walls of the island. Yeah, and you need a change of energy because the energy is quite similar everywhere. Um, mm. Women's rights—is there a difference? Because mm. America has the impression of being gender equality, and it's not. Yeah. It's not what it's people not. think it is. It is, and we saw Roe versus Wade being overturned, which is the one thing that... And that was a a huge tragedy that we experienced in this past year. So my uh, experience of that is that there are hugely conservative forces at work in America. um, And at the same time... and, And those conservative forces are also working together with the kind of very rampantly capitalist forces. And sometimes they work together. Not always, mm. because sometimes the progressives are also very much in love with their... Yeah. Um, but why do I say that? Well, we have... They struck down Roe v. Wade on abortion rights, um, making it very difficult for women uh, to get abortions or to get care, reproductive yeah. care in many states. At the same time, even in New York, that's supposed to be very progressive, women don't get maternity leave. I like know. they have to cobble together like disability leave and their time off just to get, you know, a couple months with their newborns. That to me is shocking. Now, Coming think, from like Europe. I that's think that's shocking. totally I think that's something that most non Americans don't realise about America. There's no maternity yeah. leave, there's very very little maternity leave. A basic woman's right. I mean, and I think you need maternity leave. I also think you need paternity leave. I do think they go together. But I think it's the one shocking thing I found out about America, that there is no maternity leave. Yeah. And so you have these conservative and sort of uh, ultra-capitalist forces, and then you have some people who are truly like boundary-pushing thinkers. And there are people who are truly very open. For example, in New York City, the diversity you see there is unlike any other place I've lived in or been to. It's very much like you can do anything and be anything here. And so, of course, that's not always the case. Nothing is absolute, Mm. right? Um, But I have experienced that welcoming spirit there more uh, than in other places. Um, in Cyprus, we have, you know, we have a society that's still very much largely in the grips of the church. Mm. Uh, I'm talking about Greek Cypriot society. Um, and, um, but we also have very strong familial and friendship networks. And these can be stifling sometimes. But I don't think we realize their value. I mean, I had to live abroad for so long to just realize what a special thing that is to actually be able. And of course, I speak from a place where I have a, you know, I have positive experiences with my family. Mm. I acknowledge that not everyone has that. But there are, um, but even there are networks of support, again, because of the, the way society is structured in Cyprus where where you will not be left I mean some people are but you won't be left on the street the things that you see in the states the homelessness the callousness um, it's just 
you know it's mind blowing we it's mind blowing yes which is why it makes me sad sometimes when i see some of that attitude seep into the cypriot context especially around the topics of migration and that's another big 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 topic and asylum seekers and so on and so forth um but in terms of um women's rights Yeah, the US has gone backwards uh and I just want to hope that Cyprus will continue going forwards. I hope so too. Um yeah. Is there anything else you want to say before we close because I'd like you to give us a message being in the what you call as the privileged position of living here and in the states being able to move mm-hmm. around between these two worlds. Yeah. Um I think This is what I tell also a lot of young people who sometimes will ask me should I get into the arts should I study literature should I study film should I um and I say yes if you like it and you love it you should but you should also know that it's a lifestyle that gives you a lot of um beautiful experiences but it brings some challenges with it and uh one of them is the financial sort of challenge you know these project based works and of course we we don't get paid as much as lawyers or doctors or accountants and so on and so forth but that it's okay to step outside of what are the typical sort of professions mm-hmm. in your space if you love what you do and you're passionate about what you do and if you're clear-eyed about your personal limitations there are people that come from very affluent families they can do that no problem there are people who need to work for a living so they need to know how to balance those two things um and the other thing i tell people who sometimes feel like because they come from this place they may they may not be appealing to the outside world to the universities to the art spaces i say don't feel like where you're from let's say cyprus um is a limitation it's a negative find the ways it's informed your work and don't be embarrassed about yeah. it use it channel it that's what makes you special and that's what will help you connect to other people that have had similar similar experiences or radically different experiences because difference is also what connects us it's not just you know sameness um so that would be my my final message okay any final message for cyprus uh what do you want to say my dear cyprus i want i hope that we managed to all collectively overcome our like self-imposed <laughs> limits and our self-hate and see ourselves for what we are and not get blinded by unnecessary hate i think okay i think that's a good one that's a good one okay yeah. argiro lovely to speak to you i'm sure we could have gone on for much longer but we mm-hmm. can do that another time when you go after you, you, after you do the um the theater film festival in drama and when your new yeah. movie comes out then we'll be back absolutely but lovely to speak to you um thank you it was my pleasure it was uh yeah a long i've 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 looked forward to this for <laughs> so long and i'm very grateful to you magda and to your listeners thank you so much thank you and to the listeners um thank you for listening and stay safe
the first trilingual podcast station of Cyprus, Island Talks, open, diverse, free.